So just as a, a matter of review from weeks prior, what we've been going through, you'll remember that uh, last week, what we talked about mostly was it was a concern about Absalom's uh, beginning his sort of insurrection. And we know we noted that a couple of weeks ago that Joab, the uh, David's uh, kind of, I guess you would say, uh, chief in command, his his um, head officer um, was. You know, wanting to bring Absalom back to the the promised land, and um, we also saw that when he did that, and when he kind of really, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, usurped the authority of of God, um, and wanted to restore Absalom, and perhaps even get rid of Solomon, that that was actually a bad move for David and for the kingdom because Absalom is going to end up doing some really bad things, and we're, as we're going to see tonight. And so Absalom comes back after two, two years, uh, or after a few years of exile, and then two years after his return, he is uh, frustrated that he hasn't been introduced back to David. So he comes back into the promised land, but David more or less gives him the silent treatment, the cold shoulder, and so he sends Absalom away and or just kind of lets him live in his own house and doesn't talk to him. And so Absalom is really frustrated that he hasn't been restored to a place of prominence. And so he tries to get Joab's attention, who is going to introduce him to the court. Joab uh, ignores him, basically ghosts his phone call two times before uh, before. Uh, Absalom gets frustrated and just lights his field on fire and is, and is like, uh, you know, your move. And so Joab gets mad and, and comes to him. And finally that arranges an introduction between uh, Absalom and David, where David blesses Absalom and sort of more or less, I guess, restores him to a, a place of prominence in the kingdom. And Absalom then uses that place of prominence to prepare a coup. And he does this methodically. And I mean, although it's sinful, quite devious uh, and, and, you know, quite shrewd of him to do. He, um, he first begins by, uh, by ingratiating himself to the people by really tearing down these ideas of, you know, these symbolic ways that the, the king would respond to people. So the king would typically, they would bow down before him and they would, you know, kind of the typical thing that you see with a king, well, Absalom goes in and uh, kisses them and he acquires for himself an entourage. So he takes on the persona of a king and he looks like a king and everyone is really thinking of him like a king. And, um, and then he gets up early in the morning and he goes to the city gates and he meets the people coming in and the people, it seems like in the text, at least, I, th- I think this is, this is right, that uh, the people that are of the tribe of Judah, he sort of, you know, lets go by and get into the, the castle to see the king. But the people that are of any other tribe, he stops at the gate and says, you know, hey, no one's, no one's here to really listen to your case. But, you know, uh, I mean, I will if you want me to, you know, and and ingratiates himself toward the rest of Israel that way. And so the text really ends with him um, uh, stealing the hearts of the people. It's literally what it says. He stole the hearts of the the men of Israel out from under David. And And it's possible, and I think probable, that David had some neglect of the people. And that's partially what Absalom is kind of capitalizing on, is that David is you know, intentionally or unintentionally neglecting the people around him. And so, um, so Absalom's kind of capitalizing on that, but for one reason or another, he arises and you remember a very crucial point. He goes to fulfill a religious vow in, uh, in, in, um, in a nearby city. And he takes with him 200 men of the town all the way up to Shiloh. And they, 
there he gathers kind of a mob essentially that support him and he's sort of building a momentum to come into the town this sort of uh, what we would say now in politics is a grassroots campaign that he has that he has garnered and he's bringing it into Jerusalem and as he's going to bring it in David's quickly going to realize hey he's got he's got more people than I do and there's not a whole lot of people there uh, to support to support David, as we're about to see. And so we get this situation now that we're concerned with tonight, where David is going to leave the city of Jerusalem, which is a significant move. Uh, he's preparing. He knows now Absalom, or he's about to find out that Absalom is coming. And he's got to pack up and he's got to get out of there. And so, uh, so he, he's going to do that. So, um, we look in our, in our, our, our text, we see that, that uh, he's faced with this powerful conspiracy, um, with, uh, I see your question there, Sean Shiloh is outside of Jerusalem. It is, uh, North of Jerusalem. Uh, I'm trying to pull up my mind map real quick. And I believe it's North of Jerusalem, maybe, uh, 50 miles, maybe, maybe more, um, but just north of Jerusalem. Um, so uh, David is faced with this conspiracy from, uh, from Absalom, and he is going to have to move east towards Jerusalem. And uh, I, I was actually wrong about Shiloh uh, now that I, I think about it, because obviously I've got it here in the first point. It was Hebron. It's that which is south of Jerusalem is where he went, not, not Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh is another worshiping center, but he, he went down south to Hebron and he's coming up from Hebron into Jerusalem. Uh, so Hebron is sort of the southernmost point of uh, the territory, the traditional territory of the land of Israel. And so he's in he's in the south and he's coming up to Jerusalem. And so David is going to pack up and he is going to flee to the east uh, and going and to leave leave Jerusalem. And so we're going to see him walk across the Kidron Valley with his entourage of people past the city gates, past the last house of the sell- settlement outside the gates, across the Kidron Valley, and up the slope of the Mount of Olives. And I'm going to show you a map in just a minute that kind of lays all those things out. But first, I want to read the passage. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage, so just bear with me as we, as we read this. But uh, verse 13 all the way to 32 in your verse packet should be there of 2 Samuel chapter 15 says this, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us and for Absalom. Go uh, uh, us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king uh, left ten concubines to keep his house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they they halted at the last house. And all the servants uh, passed passed by him. And all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, wherever my Lord, the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite 
passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and passed the pe- and the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up to him, came up, and behold, Zadok came also with him, with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set the Ark of God, uh, they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, uh, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up uh, the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went went up weeping as they went. And it was told to told David, Ahith, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Now, we're, I'm going to pause right there because um, we'll, we'll get to more of this in just a minute. And we'll certainly read the rest of it in just a minute. But David is leaving, you can see, in a state of mourning as he has packed up. And one, we know he's obviously mourning because he's weeping and all the people are weeping with him. And he is, uh, he's, you know, leaving the city and he's also barefoot and his head is covered. So it tells us this, he's kind of taking on, it's sort of a funeral procession as they leave, uh, you know, out, out east. Now, if you have been tracking over the last three years that we've been doing this study, you, you'll probably know that uh, when you move east, uh, let me switch to my keynote here. When you move, oh, by the way, this is the, let me back up. This is the, uh, the direction here. So you, uh, someone had asked, there's Hebra, Hebron, uh, Shiloh would be up here, Jerusalem's here, uh, and David's moving out, out east. This is the path that David takes over, he says, to the fords of the Jordan, which is sort of the flatlands around the Jordan right here. So he's moving out east, out from Jerusalem, and, uh, and Absalom is coming up from the south into Jerusalem. Now, if, you know, if you've been tracking with us so far, you'll remember that eastward movement in the Old Testament is normally always away from the presence of God. In fact, it always is, especially when you're moving from the promised land. But you'll know, you'll probably remember there's, there's some significant times in Scripture where um, people are kicked out east of the sort of promised land. Let's just put it that way in generic terms. You remember Adam and Eve? They're driven out of the Garden of Eden, the promised land there in the Garden of Eden, and they're removed east of Eden. They're they're kicked out uh, east of Eden. We're actually going to see later when the children of Israel are exiled by Babylon, Babylon comes and packs them up and also travels east out of Babylon. So this notion of the king of Israel packing up and moving out to the east is a, a, for, is, is a very, uh, it's not only is it foreshadowing of Israel's eventual exile, but it, it is, a, is maybe the word foreboding also uh, fits in this context. It's, a, it's an ominous scene as David moves out east of Jerusalem. Now, with David, m- sort of metaphorically also goes 
all of Israel with him. Remember, he's the king that God set on his holy hill. And the one coming up to replace him, Absalom, is not the king that God has ordained come after David. In fact, Solomon, we've already seen, is the king to come after David. And so it essentially Jerusalem or all of the, the Jews metaphorically are moving with David out there into exile. This is a future picture of what we're going to see uh, long after the days of David and Solomon when Babylon comes in and packs them all up uh, and drives them out east. So this is an exile of sorts and a foreshadowing for us as we read the Old Testament, we get a glimpse of what's coming and seeing this happen to David, it it probably takes on a little bit more uh, maybe significance. Now, you notice that he does a couple of things that are a little bit probably strange at first. Um, in like in verse 16, I believe it is. Let me see here. Um, verse 16, he leaves 10 concubines behind. Um, he brings his whole household, but he le- he leaves them behind. I think it's verse 16, is it? Uh, the king set out in his entire household, but he, he left behind 10 concubines to take care of the palace. Um, these are, they're, they're sort of set on guard, but they're not guards in the sense that they're going to stand there and uh, keep Absalom from, you know, doing his, his worst. They're sort of there, I guess, to, to keep the, the way, the way of looking at it would be to keep, keep up the, the palace grounds as it were, or, um, sort of uh, keep, keep up the, the, the palace as the center of where the king dwells. Uh, so David is leaving and he's not sure what Absalom is going to do or what's going to become of Absalom. And so he leaves those 10 concubines there as sort of a means of kind of upkeep of the grounds. And, and um, what it actually turns out to be, though, is uh, a, a way for Absalom to come in and demonstrate that he has conquered David. So David is leaving them behind as a way of demonstrating to the people that he's still there. When Absalom comes in and, you know, pardon the the graphic nature of this, but lays with them, um, that's a sign to the people that he has conquered David uh, by more or less conquering, so to speak, his concubines. Well, it, it, so so it, just like it works for David to kind of keep up the appearances of that he's still there, for Absalom to come in and conquer them is sort of symbolic of him in the eyes of the people to conquer David, if that makes sense. That's, that's kind of the correlation, but he leaves them behind. Now, um, if, if David had fought Absalom, then leaving, keeping the, if he had stayed behind and kept, kept the women there, they would be kind of more of a, a hindrance rather than a help. Um, the, the women were not people that would fight in battle like they would be like either America would consider them now or even Israel would consider them now. Uh, back then, obviously, they weren't. And so by taking some of the women uh, that, that Absalom does, these 10 that David lays behind, he's laying claim to the kingdom uh, over David. And David is not there to defend it. And so that's that's kind of the 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 way that these 10 concubines are going to be used. And that's probably not a comfortable topic for any of us to really think about, but that's uh, sort of the way, um, I guess, if you want to say palace intrigue took place or things happened within the palace walls and as a symbol to the people. We, We talked about several weeks ago where David is building up this family and he's got, you know, he has many wives uh, and he, he has children and these children are a blessing from the Lord, even though his, you know, indiscretions with women are obviously one of the reasons why he's being punished right now. But um, so there, there's a, a sense in which um, the, the size of one's family, including a plurality of wives, might be seen to the rest of the people as a, a means of of authority and power and that you had um you, you were deserving of being king obviously look how the lord is blessing him is kind of a thought from the people and so uh, absalom is walking in and he's going to basically lay claim to david's kingdom and part of doing that is saying well obviously the lord is blessing him because look he has given david's wives to 
uh, Absalom, or David's in this case, concubines to Absalom. Now, David makes this really quick decision to just pack up and leave the city, which is another sort of curiosity in the text is, is kind of, why, David, why wouldn't you stay and fight? You know, why wouldn't you just uh, stay there and, yeah, and, and, and fight? We know David's not immune to battle. I mean, David's been in battle tons in his life. He's a warrior. Uh, it's part of the reason why he can't build the temple, remember, God tells him, because so much blood is on your hands. And so, David, why don't you just stay and fight? And, and we're not specifically told, but there might be some, some really good logical reasons that you would think why David would just pack up and leave. For one, you know, there's the men of the city that are with Absalom, and David might be under the impression that they're cooperating willingly, which would mean that if, if the 200, you know, men of prominence— in the city are with Absalom in this, then David might figure, I don't stand a chance of really doing anything, nor do I stand a chance of, even if I win, garnering power and influence back. Um, so it's best to just pack up and leave. That, that might be one reason. Um, another reason might be he's avoiding that direct confrontation uh, you know, in this case, with his own flesh and blood, his son, which you can't deny, David does love Absalom as a son, um, but he's he could be avoiding direct confrontation. We saw him do this with Saul. Rather than put up a, a confrontation, uh, he avoided that kind of direct confrontation. Uh, this gets into some really un- uncomfortable territory for us, I think, especially as modern-day Americans particularly Americans, uh, because we love our freedoms and we believe in fighting for our freedoms. And I think in large part, those are good things. At the same time, uh, David is maybe uncomfortably resigned to the will of God taking place. Uh, He did that with Saul, all throughout Saul's tirades against David and pursuing him. And though he was tempted sometimes, and and though he cut off his robe one time, he really felt guilty about those things. And he stepped back and goes and said, you know what? I'm I'm comfortable not touching the Lord's anointed. I think the Lord's going to have his day here. And so I don't really see the need to fight back. So he ran. Now, particularly Americans, I think this is probably true of, of many countries in the world, but particularly Americans, we would call that cowardice. Because for us, uh, to take one's freedom in one's own hand and fight for it is part of the DNA of our very country. And we, you know, we, uh, that, that's, that's built into us from birth somehow. And so we see that as, as kind of a normal thing. And so if I were to say to you, if a, you know, a police officer came to your doorstep, I, I, I think I'm speaking to largely, uh, people that are comfortable with the second amendment here, let's say, so let's say a, a police officer or sheriff comes to your doorstep and said, you know, give me all your guns. Um, the second amendment protecting, uh, you know, American in you would say huh, second amendment, right? I mean, this is, that's what the second amendment is for. Um, but what if I said to you, no, why don't you just be like David and just give them up and who cares and live to see another day and leave it to the hand of God? I mean, you can see already, even if you, regardless of what your opinions are on those kinds of issues, you can see where that could make somebody really uncomfortable who's used to having those kinds of rights. Well, here David is resigned to the will of God completely and totally, even if that means he's going to die. Look at what he says on his way out. He's like, look, he tells the the high priest on his way out, you know, if God brings me back, I think, you know, I hope God will bring me back to see the Ark of the Covenant and the place where it sits. But you know what? If he doesn't, and if he is done with me, well, then here I am, and he can do with me whatever he wants to do. I mean, can you really, th- really imagine that? 
Imagine you saying that about a situation that might even seem like it's within your control to do something about. To instead say, you know what? The Lord can do with it what he wants. And I mean, a lot of people are going to say, no, you fool. You have to get up and you have to do something about it, not David. And so that, that's, that could be one where he's avoiding direct confrontation as he did with Saul and just, you know, leaving it to the hand of the Lord. Um, there's another, another possibility. And really all three of these might in one way or another be, be part of the equation. You know, they, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, he might've thought it, that it was best to just, you know, give in rather than having Jerusalem endure a siege and having all the people be put in the middle of a civil war. Um, you know, I mean, think about the great uh, leaders of the past, like Abraham Lincoln, you know, would he, if he could have taken the fight of the civil war to a territory where it wouldn't have put civilians in the middle of it, uh, would he have done that? Uh, probably so. And perhaps this is what David is doing is saying, look, if we're going to fight, I'm going to leave the, I'm going to leave town and I'll let him come find me. And, you know, we can do whatever we're going to do outside of the city of Jerusalem and let's not make the Lord watch us, you know, the Ark of the Covenant being right there. And all of those may be in some part, part of it, but those are some possibilities where you could actually see, oh yeah, it makes kind of, it makes sense for David to just pack up and leave. But this is also an interesting thing that he would put the city before his own needs, uh, because that's he didn't put the people of Israel before himself when he took Bathsheba. He put his own needs ahead of everybody else's. And now here he may be uh, learning his lesson, so to speak. So David packs up and he leaves in his, but, but here's what is totally, I think, just mind blowing about the way this narrative uh, un unravels here in front of us. Um, or, or sort of opens in front of us. David's flight from Jerusalem is a pageant of his life so far in reverse order. Uh, he is going to lose people in the reverse order that he got them, um, all the way up to him finally being insulted by Saul's members of Saul's household. So first... He encounters people who served him in Jerusalem, the, the most recent people that have joined him in Jerusalem and celebrated his kingship. And then as he moves out to the wilderness, it regresses, I guess you could say, into the house of Saul, beginning to insult him. And so what this shows is that, so that, that's, uh, I'm going to go to the next slide, but that's in Jerusalem and house of Saul are those two blanks. But the stages of his flight reversed David's rise to power. So what this shows, and the, the author of 2 Samuel, I think is intentionally showing us, is that the kingdom of David is literally unraveling before his eyes. God is step by step. I mean, it's amazing, I think, when you look at it. God is step by step taking away everything that he gave to David in the first place. Remember, that is a sign of God's being with someone is that he gives them victories, right? And we've talked about the thing with, with, you know, women or with a family or with building a family, but military victories, servants from other kings coming to serve David, uh, most recently the ones that have come in Jerusalem. And, um, and then down into Hebron and some of the Hittites and the people that came to him that were part of the, um, the, uh, his time, his journey down in uh, the land of the Philistines. And, uh, and some of those, like him getting those people to join him in, uh, and submitting to his kingship is a sign that, hey, the, the Lord is, is with this person. Um, we needn't look any further than Jesus who is, you know, implementing the kingdom of God. And who do we have submitting to his kingship? We have people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, 
right? This is a sign that God is with him, right? Um, well, David in a small capacity, sort of the same way. And now as he loses these people one by one, what does that say? But that his kingdom is unraveling and not only unraveling, being dismantled piece by piece by none other than God himself. David recognizes this and he tells the high priest, look, you know, if God wants me, he can have me. Whatever he wants can happen. But Zadok, the priest and Abiathar and the Levites, they come out. Oh, and and I want to lay this out here. You can see this unraveling. I'm going to put these up here. You don't have to write these down or anything like that, but I think it's interesting. He first has members of his own household. Uh, he, he, you know, loses them. They're the closest to him in Jerusalem. Then we get Zadok and the Ark of the Covenant, which we saw come into his life in Second Samuel or such, uh, leave. And then uh, we see Hushai come in. We'll talk, we'll talk about him in just a minute. Ziba, uh, a, a steward of, of a servant of Mephibosheth. And then we'll see members of the house of Saul. Uh, uh, eventually in 16.5. So it's, it's unraveling piece by piece uh, his kingdom. So the, the, the priests perhaps bring the Ark of the Covenant because they might be thinking that the Ark would bring favor and protection to David. Or perhaps they associated the Ark with David's house and his kingdom. Remember, they used the Ark back in 1 um, in, uh, Samuel 4, I believe it is, uh, and five, where they, they bring it out on the battlefield to fight the Philistines, and the Philistines end up defeating them. They think of the battle like a, uh, like a, uh, uh, like, or the ark, like it's a good luck charm, and they're going to bring it to the battle, and they're going to defeat the enemies of the Lord, because if the Lord is on the battlefield with the ark, then he's going to give us the victory. But actually, the Lord allows them to be defeated and lets the ark be held captive. And so there may still be some of this idea coming in into their minds, or they may just associate it with David's house. But the important part of this is that David doesn't see it this way. David instead sends them back to the city because the ark had been set up as the place um, uh, as, as, the pla- as a place of worship, and it's been set in that place for a reason. And that was the place where God had chosen to dwell in David's mind. And also as God has expressed, that was his chosen place to dwell. And so whatever happened to David, uh, David saw the Lord as still being on his throne and his throne would not be removed. And so David, it seems that though in chapter 11, when he goes into Bathsheba, does not have his theology right. By the time he leaves, or, or perhaps, yeah, well, that, that may be fair. He doesn't have his theology right. He thinks the king can do whatever he wants. But then by the time he leaves Jerusalem, it seems like he's already learned his lesson, and he's already seeing what the Lord is doing, and he's already resigned to the Lord having his way and, and really punishing him in the way that he sees fit. Could you say that about you? Uh, in the midst of something that you consider to be God's punishment, how quick are you to resign yourself to say, this is clearly the Lord's punishment, his discipline of me. And I've resigned myself to his will and and whatever he wants to have, he can have. Um, David, it seems, does have his theology right as he's leaving, at least. And um, to me, that's a a test case for what the Bible declares about David and being a a man after God's own heart, Um, which obviously doesn't mean he was perfect. So on his way out, uh, David is going to pray. And I want to, I want to finish David's prayer here. And I'm not sure if I included these and if I didn't, that would be an accident, but uh, in 33 and uh, through um, 37 here, uh, it says David came to the summit. This is thirty-two. David came to the summit where he used uh, where he used to worship God. Hushai the archite um, uh, was there to meet him 
with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go away with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and tell Absalom, I will be your servant, your, your majesty. Uh, uh, previously, I was your father's servant, and now I'll be your servant. Then you can counteract Ahithbael's counsel for me. Won't the, priest, won't the priests Zadok and Abiathar be there with you? Report everything you hear from the palace to the priests Zadok and Abiathar. Take note, their two sons are there with them, Zadok's son Ahimaaz and Abiathar's son Jonathan. Send them to tell me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's personal advisor, entered Jerusalem just as Absalom was going into the city. Um, and then just before that, this is in verse 31, uh, David is, is going and he sees that this is happening and he says, Lord, David pleaded, please turn the council of Ahithpael, Ahith, Ahithophel into foolishness. So David is there uh, leaving and he is praying to the Lord that the Lord would undermine the counsel of Ahithophel. Remember that Ahithophel is, uh, we, we saw last week, his counsel was like receiving counsel from the Lord is what the Bible tells us. And it is going to tell us in, in a few chapters. And so receiving his counsel is prominent. And so David knows if Ahithophel is with, is with Absalom, well, man, he's, he's good. And so, so he's, he's praying that the Lord would answer his, his prayer. And, you know, what, what we see is that immediately after that, Hushai shows up and as an answer to David's prayer, immediately an answer to David's prayer. Why? Because here is a person who shows up as a servant of David, willing to do whatever David wants. And David is, has the, his wits about him to send him back and plant him in the palace as a spy to tell the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, everything that's going on there so that they may tell him. So Hushai, we're going to see, totally undermines Absalom completely and ends up in Absalom's destruction. So in this passage, we don't know it yet because we haven't read that far, but spoiler alert, Hushai is the answer to David's prayer. We're going to see in just a little bit. Well, we'll see next week. Um, And, uh, and so David prays this and the Lord still hears his prayer and still answers it, still responds to it. And which is incredibly encouraging for me. Uh, knowing that even in the midst of discipline, the Lord has not rejected David altogether. He still hears him. He still cares for him. He still loves him. And he is still going to use the prayers that David prays as a means of enacting his will through Hushai. Um, And uh, I I like to think of Hushai as leaving to go to David before David even offers the prayer. Isn't that interesting? That Hushai is likely on his way long before David ever thinks to pray that, um, that the Lord would turn Ahithophel's counsel against him. Um, so the Lord's already there, uh, ready to answer David's prayer. And we're going to see that actually come about. And we're going to see the author tell us the Lord is doing this, by the way. Uh, we'll, we'll see that later on. And so um, recognizing that Hushai could serve David more effectively by staying in Jerusalem. David sends him back, which, and he suggested a kind of a deception to get close to Absalom and act like a spy on the inside of the palace walls, and then link up with the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, or Abiathar, and uh, tell them everything that's going on inside the palace walls so that they can come and tell me what's happening so that I might be uh, abreast of the situation which is a, a genius move. It turns out Absalom's shrewdness is, is perhaps matched by his father's shrewdness. Um, and so uh, Hushai is going to be this really crucial weapon in this uh, battle against Absalom, as we're going to see. And so then David, on his way out, he has these last two encounters with these, uh, these, these members of the house of Saul. First, David is going to meet Ziba, 
uh, who we, we saw a few chapters ago, who's the servant of Mephibosheth, um, who made a show of loyalty by giving David some food and drink and, 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 a don- and donkeys for his people to ride on. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that in chapter 16, and it's just verses 1 through 4. When David had gone a little beyond the summit, Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, was right there to meet him. He had a pair of saddled donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and a clay jar of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride. The bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat. And the wine is for those to drink who become exhausted in the wilderness. Where is your master's grandson? The king asked. Why, uh, why, is, he, uh, why is he staying in Jerusalem? Ziba replied to the king, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore my grandfather's kingdom to me. The king said to Ziba, All that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. I will bow before you, Ziba said. May I find favor with you, my lord, the king. Uh, okay, so here is Mephibosheth's servant who has promised service to David before and is coming to kind of show his promised service to David. But we're not entirely sure of his motives, um, but for sure he ingratiates himself to David. He might be playing both sides of the fence. We don't know. But for whatever reason, he brings, it, he brings out food to David and he, he gives him a little piece of intel. But he, he says that Mephibosheth, is using the opportunity of Absalom's conspiracy to reassert claims of the house of Saul. So we have someone from the house of David asserting that he's the rightful heir to the throne, that'd be Absalom. We have someone uh, in Mephibosheth asserting, hey, I'm the only one of the house of Saul left, and Saul should be really on the throne. And so Mephibosheth, remember, is crippled in both feet, and David has taken him into his house, and here he, you know, kind of turns to a dog and just sort of betrays David right there in spite of the fact that David had shown him a lot of kindness uh, in the past and didn't kill him like he had every, I guess, had every right to or was common back then. And so Ziba helped David. He ingratiated himself to him, and Ziba also told David that Mephibosheth was using the opportunity of Absalom's conspiracy to reassert claims the house of Saul and believing that Mephibosheth had betrayed him, David granted all the lands and property of Mephibosheth to Ziba. How much weight that persuaded Mephibosheth to leave his lands, I don't know. But you do have to remember, I mean, he, he's crippled in both feet and presumably his servant is not. And so that probably left him in a pretty precarious position uh, to make a claim to really anything. And... Um, and so, uh, so anyway, um, he grants all the land to, to Ziba. Well, then we get a second member of Saul's house. Uh, we have Shimei of Gera, and he's going to be openly hostile to, uh, to David on the way out. And, um, and, and he's claiming, you know, David unlawfully took the throne from Saul and was, is guilty of, of blood. And not only from the house of Saul, but also from Ishbosheth. You'll remember, uh, David put to death uh, Ishbosheth. And we're told in the text that this man, uh, you know, because probably the question would be, how do we know he's from the house of, of Saul? Well, he is a Benjaminite. He is a son of Gera. Uh, which is a son of Benjamin. So he is a a Benjaminite, which puts him of the house of Saul, which is interesting because now you have a Benjaminite cursing. This is when David, when King David, this is verse five, when King David got to uh, Bahurim, a man belonging to the family uh, of the house of Saul was just coming out. His name was Shimei, son of Gera. And he was yelling curses as he approached. He threw stones at David. It's like a mock execution. He threw stones at David and at all the royal servants, the people and the warriors on David's right and left. Shimei said, as he cursed, 
Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man. The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you became king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son, Absalom. Look, you are in trouble because you are a man of bloodshed. And you gotta love this. Here's Abishai, true to form. He says, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over there and remove his head. <laughs> so, you know, you still got those people. <laughs> you still need those people on your right hand uh, willing to stick up for you. But there's <laughs> there's Abishai uh, <laughs> ready to, to, to take out David's enemies um, and beat this man. And yet David just submitted to the cursing. And he submitted to the, really, the enmity of Saul uh, in the same way. And he just took it, even though he knew it wasn't true. And, you know, that, that, to me, these, these tests of David's character are just, are fascinating. Because it's, you know, he's not perfect. And I don't mean to make him Jesus at all, because he's not. Um, but at the same time, we see him sh- foreshadowing the character of Christ who is being cursed and spat upon and yet like a lamb to the slaughter, he went. He opened not his mouth uh, in spite of the cursing that was ar- around him. And we see this you know, same character coming from his great, 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 great grandfather um, as he's as he's being led out of the city, he knows it's not true. And he doesn't say anything. And how quickly uh, we are to defend, how quickly I am, I'll just put it on me, how quickly I am to defend myself when, um, you know, here is David not. Um, so two members of Saul's house appeared to David. One was friendly, the other was hostile. And what do we see when David's running from Saul? We see two members of Saul's house. One is Saul himself and the other is Jonathan. One's kind to him. The other is not. Jonathan provided for David. Saul attacked him. David was basically left at the end of this narrative where we're going to end tonight. David is left back where he started out in the wilderness being cursed by a Benjaminite. How's that for irony? slowly unravels right before his eyes, leaving no doubt this is the Lord's judgment. Um, Questions? Uh, I had a question just about at the beginning, you're, you're talking about how everything's unraveling, but it wasn't clear to me that people were leaving David. It seemed like he was sending some of them back, like he sent the priest back. Um, yeah, the point, the point that I was making like is that he's losing. Were they going with him? Um, some of them are. Some of them are, are not. Um, and he's telling them to go. The point that I was trying to make, and probably butchered it, is that he's losing them. Um, he's packing up, and he's leaving. And... Uh, he's forced, like with the concubines as an example, he's forced to make them stay um, with some of his servants. He's forced to have to, what, what choice does he have but to, but to let some of his servants go back and serve as a spy inside the palace? Why does he do that? Well, because his son's coming to kick him out of his palace. And that was more the point that I was trying to make. And that the order at which they appear in the story is, uh, is a really a reverse order from where they were in the story. They were with him in Jerusalem versus they, you know, were part of the kingdom of Saul as he left. That was more the kind of the point that I was trying to make. But okay. Still unclear. Other questions? I have a question. Sure. Do we see the Mount of Olives um, in a lot of other passages between this passage and like, Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It seems like the Mount of Olives is such an important place to Jesus and his disciples. And it seems like there's some 
interesting parallels there, right? As David is going, I mean, not perfect parallels, but as David is going out mourning to the Mount of Olives and we think of Jesus going out mourning on the Mount of Olives, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would, if, um, if I could say conclusively the extent of the parallels, like in this story from the Mount of Olives, I can say there, there is prominence to the Mount of Olives, sure. Um, the prophets, and I, I would struggle to recall which one, but set, uh, prophesized that the Lord will set his foot down on the Mount of Olives um, when the day of the Lord comes. And some pe- depending on your, uh, your end times persuasion, let's put it that way, uh, some people see that as a future uh, fulfillment, but I think that's a, that's a already happened fulfillment. That's a Jesus set his foot down on the Mount of Olives. Um, and before he came or when he was here, I should say, and that's God setting his foot down on the Mount of Olives. Um, so yeah. So yes, prominence. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, this is one of the, one of the rare times you see the Mount of Olives appear in the old Testament. I think one of the few times. Yeah. Good questions. Anything else? Well, okay. Let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night and for an opportunity to just read through the, the word and, and look at what's happening. And we thank you for both the model of uh, discipline and your rod of discipline that we see and how uh, easy that is to relate into our own lives as we see your hand of discipline come against us uh, to correct us and to uh, train us in righteousness. And then also to look at the model of, of David, um, not opening his mouth, but that, that's a blessing as well to know that we can endure, um, cursing. We can endure, uh, all kinds of things that are untrue and not worry about having to defend ourselves. Uh, man, what, a, what an encouragement that is. And so we, we just pray that those, uh, appearances um, in the scriptures, those, those messages from the scriptures, from your word would seep into our hearts and our minds that as we um, live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven first, that our priorities would be to respond in the way that your citizens respond to things. And um, as we see emulated for us in the text, uh, both in the way they respond and in, in repentance of sin, things like that. Uh, I pray that that would become us and we would be creatures of the word, but also those marked by grace and mercy that we have been shown and marked by repentance of sin. I pray that you would do all of those things in us as we continue to study your word. Thank you for it. In Jesus name. Amen. All right, everyone.